Well, take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter number 2. We are working our way through the Gospel of Luke, and we are now to chapter number 2. And Luke, uh, every, every Gospel that I have preached through, and this is the third one I began uh, preaching through, it becomes my favorite. And uh, one, of the, one of the aspects that I really love, particularly about John, in his gospel, and I'm seeing a lot in Luke, is the way that they put the narratives, the stories together to make a point. And I've already said this a number of times, I'll say it again, the way that Luke talks about the birth of Christ and the birth of John the Baptist is, show, is to show the difference in the greatness between Jesus and John, right? And to see this again, you need to look no further than the accounts of their births. For example, in chapter number one, John's birth account, it, it mo- at most it covers two verses, the birth of John the Baptist. But when we get to Luke chapter number two, the birth of Jesus covers 20 verses. And so there's a distinct difference in the greatness between John the Baptist and, and Jesus Christ. And with that, we'll read the first seven verses together. If you'll stand with me, we'll begin reading in verse number one. It says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. I'm going to pause right there. If you look on a map, you'll notice that Nazareth is up here and Bethlehem's down here. Why does it say up? And the answer is, it's literally up in altitude. So Bethlehem is higher in elevation than Nazareth. And in, in the Bible, there's two ways that you go up or down. One is Jerusalem is always up. It doesn't matter if you come from a place that's got a higher elevation or if it's north of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is always up. And so that's one of the ways. And it doesn't matter. Jerusalem is up. And then secondly, they view things from the standpoint of elevation and not the way we do, like up on a map. So just a little biblical explanation. If you don't care about that, I'm sorry. I wasted your time. Let's keep reading. And we're in verse number four. And he says, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Let us pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the, the, the accurate account that Luke gave us of, of the birth of Jesus Christ. And as we look now, we see uh, three kings here, Lord, and, and the, the, the last one is the greatest one, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And I pray that uh, you will help us to every day remind ourselves that Jesus Christ is king and we are his his slaves and that we'll obey him and please him and honor him and glorify him in everything that we do in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you very much. These first seven verses are all about kings. In, In seven verses, three different kings are mentioned. The first one is Caesar. Uh, As Uh, He's the first one mentioned. And then you have King David. He's not mentioned by name necessarily as much as the the city where he came from. And then finally, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. 
And so one king is at what he thinks is the height of his power, Caesar Augustus, and he's moving people around his empire like chess pieces. Another king, long dead, is a prom- has a promised descendant who would save the world. And the final king, the king of the universe, is born in a seemingly unnoticed and of humble circumstances. And so we meet three kings today. The first one is the king at his height. We call this king Caesar Augustus. That is his title. He's the emperor of the Roman Empire. He's the most powerful person on the face of the earth at his time. We know him by his real name, which is the name given to him, which is Octavian. And uh, he, was, he was Caesar. He was the, uh, the lineage of Caesar. Caesar was his surname. Augustus was the title, and it means exalted one. He was born in 64 B.C., and he was the grand-nephew of the original Caesar Augustus. His name was Julius Caesar. Many of you know who that is. And he began to rule the Roman Empire in 27 B.C. He was 36 years old when he became ruler of the world. And he became the, the, the emperor behind Julius Caesar because Julius Caesar was assassinated. Those of you who know your Roman history know all that. And Caesar was doing what he does best. He was taking a census for taxation purposes. Sound familiar, doesn't it? At a simple word from the emperor, people thousands of miles away were set into motion. Octavian's relentless arm stretched out all the way to Galilee and Judea to squeeze its tribute from a tiny village at the far end of the Mediterranean. This is, this is uh, the very edge of the Roman Empire. Thus it, became, thus it came about that a village carpenter named Joseph and his expected teenage uh, bride named Mary were forced to travel from his hometown to be or to his hometown to be registered for the purpose of taxation. And here's the thing. Although Caesar would never know it, he unleashed a chain of events that would turn the world upside down. For among the millions who had to register was a man named Joseph and his fiance Mary. This one little family, seemingly swept up in the tide of earthly power, gave birth to the son who would rule the world. God was taking Caesar's pawns and moving them to checkmate, right? So that the real Savior would stand alone as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The real exalted one was moved to Bethlehem. There was another man mentioned in this account. And if you'll you'll excuse me for just a minute, we're going to get into the weeds for just a moment and then we'll come back out. Another man was a Roman official named Quirinius. This man's name causes a lot of debate about the birth of Jesus Christ. I don't know how much you know about this, but it does. Verse number two, look at verse number two, says, This was the first uh, registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now there's an objection to this, and the objection comes from the fact that we know beyond a doubt, that he was governor of Syria from A.D. 6 to A.D. 9, 6 to 9 A.D., and we know for a fact that he took a census in A.D. 6. 
And that was 10 years after the birth of Jesus Christ. Luke knows about this census. He mentions it in Acts chapter 5 and verse number 37. And so what people try to say is Luke just made, made things up. This is a myth. He just, he just came up with things because Quirinius was not governor in, in, in 4 B.C., okay? But Luke was aware of another census, one that was taken about a decade earlier. Undoubtedly, this is why he specifies that Jesus was born during, look at what he says, the first registration, the first census when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Some scholars reject this solution because they say he was not even governor until 6 AD. However, um, there is evidence from other historical documents that he was governor earlier on than that. And so what critics try to do, and I want to explain this to you because some may have encountered this from people or in your reading, they try to say Luke's not accurate, the Gospels aren't accurate because, because Matthew says that Herod the Great was king over the region, and Luke says Quirinius was governor of Syria, and those are two completely different time periods. Well, they're not. They're not two different time periods. Uh, I will throw this out. Do you want to know when Jesus was born, what year? As best we can tell, it's about 4 B.C., and there's a couple ways that we know that. I'm not going to, I'd taken this out of my sermon notes, but I feel I need to stick at least a little bit in here, and let me tell you this. Um, Herod the Great died around Passover of 4 B.C., and Jesus was born before that time, most likely just three or four months prior to that time, sometime in the winter before four, the spring of 4 B.C., and that's how everything was put into motion. I know some will automatically assume that that it was two years later that Herod the Great saw the wise men. There's no reason that we have to we have to say that it was two years. There's no reason at all because we know Herod the Great, and he was just an evil, wicked guy, wasn't he? And what would stop him from saying, oh, okay, two years and younger. We'll just make sure we get rid of this, this baby, right? So anyway, uh, Jesus was most likely born somewhere around 4 B.C., in case you were wondering. And so we have... We have uh, we have the king of the Roman Empire. We have Octavian, but we have a king that had received a promise in these verses. And this is the second king, and he received this promise almost a thousand years earlier. Look at verse number three. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from a town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary his betrothed, who was with child. I want to explain something. If you've ever been over in Israel, people who are first-timers in Israel get really confused because you go to Jerusalem and you start hearing about the city of David. And people say, well, wait a minute, I thought Bethlehem was the city of David. The only time that Bethlehem is mentioned as the city of David is here in this passage. However, in the Old Testament, there are times when the city of David is mentioned, and it's, it's the part that David had he resided in Jerusalem. It's on the hillside going down between the two valleys, and it's called the city of David. And so for people living during Jesus' day and people living today, when you say city of David, most people think about the area around Jerusalem. 
And so Luke just mentions that that's where uh, uh, David was born. And so the Roman registration required that every man in Israel return to his ancestral home, meaning Joseph had to go back to Bethlehem. Now, the, the angel told Mary something that was very interesting for the purposes of what we're looking at today. He said this. He said that God would give her child the throne of his father David. Remember that? In, in verse number 32 of chapter 1. And then Zechariah, in his, in his uh, song that he gave, his prophecy, he said that God would raise up a Savior in the house of his servant David. And so Luke tells us that Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, came from the royal line of David. And so they had to go back to Bethlehem. Now the grand purpose of all of this is that you're establishing the child's credentials. In order to fulfill the promise of salvation, we know from Old Testament that Jesus had to be a descendant of King David. Joseph's lineage also explains why he took his, children, his family to Bethlehem, which was the hometown of the ancient king, and thus the place where Joseph was required to register. And there's another part of the promise. You remember this from Micah? O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth to me one who is to be a ruler of, in Israel, whose origin is from of old, the ancient of days. And so here's the point of this. In order to qualify as a Savior, Jesus had to be born in Bethlehem. And the way that God got Jesus to Bethlehem was by having Octavian have a census for taxation purposes and got him there. Our God is amazing, isn't he? He's amazing. And what's so ironic about that is using Caesar to get him there because proud Octavian became the unwitting servant of the king of the universe. What first appeared to be a great show of, of Caesar's power actually proved to, to, to show the supremacy of God's sovereignty. You ever think about that when wicked people become rulers? We like to moan and complain, don't we? Oh, Lord, why this person? Why that person? Why, why do I have that boss even at work, right? It's the sovereignty of God moving things around as he pleases. God has not relinquished control of the universe. Everything that happens... And all these people that get into high places and all your bosses and whatever else, uh, they are there by the sovereign plan of Almighty God. And God rules all things for His own glory. Remember that. He rules all things with his own, for His own glory. And so pick the person who's in power. They are there for God's glory. This is true not only for the great events of salvation history, it's true for the, the, the ordinary events of daily life. And God is working out His will, and, and He will see that He gets the glory in the end in spite of things that we do and in spite of things that kings do. And that's a wonderful uh, promise, and it's a wonderful truth that we can pull from Scripture. And then we see a third king here. We see the king of kings and his humble birth. 
The way that Luke tells the story of the nativity is a great contrast between the worldly power of Caesar and the apparent weakness of baby Jesus, isn't it? It's just, it's stunning. But there's another contrast that we need to notice, and that is this. One between the welcome that Jesus deserved and the one that he was actually given. Although he was the son of David, the true king of Israel, Jesus hardly received a welcome, did he? Think about the indignity that this is. To understand, to to meditate on how much of an indignity this is, we simply need to remember who Jesus was and is. Luke describes him as Mary's firstborn son, but he was more than that. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he was a child in the virgin's womb. He's the very son of God. Colossians 1.15 calls him the firstborn of all creation. With a unique status as God and the one and only Son, he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He was the creator of the universe. He was the maker of heaven and earth. He was the King of kings and Lord of lords, the supreme ruler of all that lives. He is the second person of the Trinity, the only begotten Son, the radiance of the Father's glory. Uh, By his divine nature, he shared the full perfection of God's triune being. That baby born in Bethlehem was the all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful, all-glorious Son of God. Think about the vast difference between the glory that he deserved and what happened in that little village of Bethlehem. What kind of welcome did he deserve? He deserved to have every person from every nation come worship him in that manger. He deserved to have every creature in the universe from the fiercest lion to the tiniest insect line up and come to his cradle and give him praise. He deserved to have creation itself offer him worship with the rocks crying glory and the galaxies dancing for joy. He is the Son of God. And anything less than that acknowledgement of His royal person is an insult to His divine dignity. And so everything about His birth is nothing but humility. What kind of, what kind of welcome did He receive, by the way? What kind of accommodations was he given? Look at verse number six. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and a cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Instead of royal robes fit for the king, he was wrapped in swaddling cloths. What are those? Swaddling cloths, they take, they take uh, cloth fabric and they rip it into strips and they wrap it around and around the child. And then the child was laid in a manger, and a manger is not some pretty little wooden box. A manger is usually hewn out of stone, a stone manger. It could have been in a cave. One of the ancient historians tell us that he was born in a cave. He could have been. We don't know. But it was a feeding trough for animals was where he was laid. He wasn't even able to be born in the humblest of places, which was an inn. I'm not talking about holiday inn. Okay, 
An inn was a guest room. Now, this word for inn is only used three times in the New Testament. And the last time it's used, it's used for the location of the Last Supper. Look at Luke 22. It says, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room? There's that word again. It's a guest room. That's the actual description of the word. It's a great room, a guest room. And it was usually, for you to understand, it's usually a great big room where travelers would come and they would, they would pay money to stay in this big room together and they slept in a common room. These, these lodgings were fairly primitive in those days. Uh, uh, and so the Bethlehem Inn was hardly a Motel 6, let alone a five-star hotel. In all likelihood, it was squalid. It was dirty, especially by contemporary standards full of sweaty travelers who've been traveling all day long. And Mary and Joseph couldn't even get one of these rooms. They couldn't even get a room in a guest room in the inn. The only place available to them was occupied by the animals. Now, many times in, the, in, in this ancient uh, times, the animals shared the same roof as the occupants. They were just in a different room. And so uh, there's, there's many examples of this. Even today, many places around the world, the animals occupy the same building as the owners of the animals. They're just in a different section under the same roof, right? And so and that was true of the poorer homes of the day. And so Jesus was born in this kind of a condition. It was uncomfortable enough to sleep there, but imagine trying to give birth in such a place, and for the first time, right? This is part of what it meant for, for Mary to keep her promise. She, she told Gabriel, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. What that meant for her was to travel almost 100 miles, either on foot or by donkey, during the later stages of pregnancy. It meant the anxiety of having labor pains in a strange city. It meant, it meant suffering her child's messy entrance into the world. It meant wiping him clean and then tearing cloths to bundle him and then praying that he would live. And that's the conditions that our Savior was born into. Everything that we know about our Savior's birth points to obscurity, to indignity and pain and rejection. And one of the great mysteries of our universe is that when God the Son became a man, he spent his first night in a barn. And it causes us to ask ourselves, why? Why? Why was he born in a barn? Why was Jesus born this way, in this manner? Well, there are at least three things. There's more, but I'm going to give you three. Number one, it shows us the depravity of our hearts depravity of our hearts. When the, when the son was born in Bethlehem, he was unrecognized and unwelcome. His birth was a foreshadowing of his rejection by the nation. Jordan and I were talking about this last night, about the rejection of, of, uh, by Israel. The Gospel of John says he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, right? Isaiah alluded to the heart of Israel. He said, the ox knows its owner, and the donkey, its master's crib, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. 
And so Israel completely rejected Jesus Christ. He was rejected through his whole ministry. He was rejected at the beginning in his hometown. He was rejected by great crowds of of Capernaum and Galilee. We see this in John chapter 6. So great was his rejection. Thousands of people moved away. He looked at the disciples and said, will you leave me also? Thousands of people left him. He was rejected. He was rejected by the religious leaders constantly during his ministry. And, And even in the end, his own disciples fled from him. Jesus' life was a life of rejection. And Jesus' birth showed us the condition of our own heart. Because left to ourselves, we don't want Jesus Christ either. Jesus was pushed aside. And th- this, this should make us angry, but honestly, let me ask you a question. How many times do you push Jesus aside? What kind of welcome are you giving him right now? Think about this. This is uh, January 2nd. Yesterday was New Year's Day. Y'all made your resolutions, right? How many of you, your resolution was, I want to get to God, know God better? I want to glorify Jesus more. I want to know Jesus. I want to know his power. I want to know the, the, the fellowship of his sufferings. Be, I want to be made conformable to the image of his death. How many of you made that New Year's resolution? How many made more time for him? Are you keeping a place open for him in your morning routine? Is there room for him in your daily activities at work or school? Are you making space for him in your home? Jesus does not deserve to be shoved aside so that you can fill your life with other things. He wants to fill your life with his grace. Are you making room for Jesus in your heart right now, in your life right now? Secondly, it shows us the humanity of Christ. Not to dwell on the details, but anyone who's ever witnessed the birth of a child knows it's a very earthy experience, isn't it? The birth of Jesus was earthier than most. And by giving us the details of his delivery, Luke shows us that he entered the world just like every other person. When Mary bundled her baby close, she was caring for a baby that was a real human being. And even though he was also the divine son of God, Jesus didn't seem... Jesus just didn't seem to be a human being alone. He was a human being. There was, no, there was no trickery being played on Mary. Mary actually gave birth to a human being, actually held a human being who happened to also be the divine Son of God, the King of the universe who created the world. Do you believe this? Do you believe that the second person of the Trinity was once a babe in his mother's arms? This is what we mean by the word incarnation. In the flesh, incarnation. The God of the universe entered into our situation and taking on all the limitations of our physical existence, he didn't save us from a distance, did he? He didn't take a wand and say abracadabra. He entered our world. He came as close to us as he possibly could, sympathizing with his inner sufferings, touching the lepers, healing the blind, raising the dead, eating with sinners. He entered our lives, and God enters our lives today, doesn't he? 
He comes in and he dwells with us in our sufferings. And, and during the painful times of our suffering, our lives, he's there. And he's there with us even when we sin. And he sees it. He has entered our world. He entered as a human and he's still with us today in the Holy Spirit. And God did this because it's necessary for our salvation. It was only by becoming a man that the Son of God could offer his body as a sacrifice for our sins. He had to be raised bodily from the grave. Jesus had to become one of us to save us. And of course we are saved by his death and not by his birth. But without his birth, there could never be a death in order for him to live again. There could be no crucifixion and no resurrection without the incarnation. But there's a third reason that he was born in this humble way. And that is it shows the humility of our own salvation. Understand this. Do not miss this. God is infinitely superior to us. Infinitely superior to us. He's not simply a bigger, better version of a human being. He's not human being 2.0. He's something different altogether. He is God and we are not. His attributes are infinitely superior to ours. He, he is the creator. We're only the creature. For God to take on our nature, therefore, was an act of infinite humility. We can't even wrap our minds around how humiliating it had to be for the Son of God to become a human being. Theologians say that for him to be born at all was humiliation. And here's the thing. If God the Son had received the universal welcome that he truly deserved, we might think, well, you know what? It was a real honor for Jesus to come to earth. You see? It was a real honor for him to come and be a man. It was not. It was not at all. It was not an honor. It was abject humility. It was infinite condescension. And although in becoming a man... The Son did not cease to be God. He laid aside the privileges and prerogatives of, of His deity, the glory that He deserved, and all, and all those trappings. And He abandoned the glories of heaven to accept the limitations of earth. Think about this. Think about, have, have you ever had to do something you don't really, really don't want to do? No, no nobody has, right? You're, maybe, maybe you're sitting at the house and it's supposed to get a little bit cold this week, and everybody's excited about the possibility of snow, I know. But you're sitting by your fire, and you get the phone call. And you're thinking to yourself, man, I really don't want to go out, right? Well, think about Jesus Christ. He's in heaven. He was literally the, the second before he was in his mother's womb. All of heaven was giving him glory. And he instantly went from receiving all the praise and glory in heaven to being a humble human being. We can't even wrap our minds around that. J.C. Ryle, who was the great English preacher from the 19th century, he said this, it's a long quote, but listen to what he said. We see here the grace and condescension of Christ. Had he come to save mankind with royal majesty, 
surrounded by his father's angels, it would have been an act of undeserved mercy. Had he chosen to dwell in a palace with power and great authority, we should have had reason enough to wonder. But to become poor as the very poorest of mankind and lowly as the very lowliest, this is a love that passes knowledge. It is unspeakable and unsearchable. And that's the love of God. It's unsearchable, isn't it? Aren't you thankful that Christ humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death at the cross? But where is he right now? God has highly exalted him, given him a name which is above every names. And the reason that Christ humbled himself, he knew that in the end he could save us only by suffering and dying for our sins. And he wanted to show this from the very beginning. The humility of his birth was the whole pattern of his life. Jesus humbled himself to the very death, and there were rumors of this already in his birth. The same body that was wrapped in swaddling clothes was also wrapped in a burial shroud. The manger points us to the cross and to the grave. And this is how we are saved, by the humility of our Savior. We are saved by believing for sure that Jesus humbled himself in becoming a man and dying on the cross for our sins. Isn't that wonderful? This is how we're called to live. We are called to live according to the pattern of his humble birth and saving death. The humility of Christ ought to humble us. You know, we're inclined to insist on our own way, aren't we? To think that, that we're more important than we really are. We get angry when people refuse to give us the credit we think we deserve or show us the honor we think we should be given. We want to be exalted and not humiliated. But there's a divinity in the humility. The same Jesus who humbled himself for our salvation also wants us to humble ourselves for the sake of others. He calls us to be like him in putting others first and taking the lowest place for ourselves. We must never forget that although he is the Son of God, the Savior we serve was wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger because there was no room for him in the end. Dear believer, are you humbling yourself before the King of the universe? Dear person that's here visiting, dear visitor, or person who maybe you've never humbled yourself before Jesus Christ, realize that he actually lived. He was a real human being who lived perfectly and died on the cross for sin and rose again because sin is a terrible thing. And without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. And without believing on the one whose blood was shed, there is no forgiveness of those sins and no hope of heaven. Will you trust Christ today? Our Heavenly Father, we we thank you for the birth of Christ. Uh, We thank you for his humility. Uh, That's probably the hardest thing for us to do is to humble ourselves. We, We love our own way, Lord. And so... I ask that you will help us identify through the Holy Spirit 
those areas of our lives where we insist on our own way and we do not take on the humility of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I pray that we will be deeply and gratefully humbled at what Jesus has done in our stead, that we will determine every day that we're going to be live as his slave and serve him with all of our might, Lord, prioritizing you in our daily life, and that one day, one day, we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant, and then we will be ushered into glory, receiving the glory of our Savior as well. In his name we pray. Amen. God is-